This has been one of those really overwhelming weeks in AI news where there's just so much to cover and so little time. We heard announcements this week from OpenAI, Microsoft, Meta, all the usual suspects, and of course, Google Gemini, which is a really exciting announcement that we'll get to in a, in a moment and, and probably one of the biggest technical breakthroughs, but not to be trumped by the attention that Google Gemini Pro 1.5 was getting, OpenAI dropped Sora, which is this new diffusion video model that has really blown people's minds. It certainly blew my mind when I watched it for the first time. The initial shock value of seeing the AI created videos, I've got one up on the screen now of this Jeep driving through a dirt track. Just the sheer realism of this OpenAI Sora model is is truly impressive. The quality of the videos is is really, really astonishing. I mean, there's one in particular I've watched where it's a, a cat pouring at its owner's face. And like there's there's a couple of defects in it that almost made me feel sick. Like it's so realistic. Seeing a human face contort in that way kind of like has a visceral response. The 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 amount of detail in the video, given that the examples they've given are text to videos, there's no like they can do it from a starting image, but they haven't in these cases. It's very real. Yeah, the prompt for that video, which I've got up on the screen now, is a cat waking up its sleeping owner demanding breakfast. The owner tries to ignore the cat, but the cat tries new tactics, and finally the owner pulls out a secret stash of treats. The secret stash of treats never comes from the video I'm watching, but it the the the, the physics movements are a little off, and like the paw, if you look really closely, is one of the paws turns into two paws briefly for a moment. Um, and the, the blanket that she sort of rolls over with or the Duna cover uh, takes on the physics of a hand. But overall, it's just super impressive that it can control like multiple characters in a scene and follow these instructions. Yes. And I think that I point out the artifacts only to say that it makes me convinced that this is real because if... The- Yes, they cherry pick examples of really good ones, but if this wasn't a real technology that they could reliably produce videos with, um, then there would, if it was faked, there would be no artifacts like that. These are artifacts we see in normal image generation and things you can get around by just iterating on prompts and things like that. So I think this is real and we're going to have it soon. And the, the quality of some of those videos, like the car driving one you gave. Um, what was the other one? I saw another one that was absolutely amazing as well, like with reflections and things like that. The, the It's gone from being like a cute little plaything to, wow, you could actually stitch together serious videos with this thing now. Yeah, this is the first time we, we talked about, I think in our predictions episode last year about how long will it be until you can create like your own personalized media content, like your own TV series or film or have media, you know, personalized to you. And it just, when I saw this, I'm like, oh God, it, you know, this is so, so much closer uh, to becoming a reality. And I've got an example up on the screen now, which is a large orange octopus is seen resting on the bottom of the ocean floor blending in with the sandy and rocky terrain its tentacles are spread out around its body and its eyes and it i mean i can't even fault this image i struggle to actually find the artifacts that we've talked about here uh in this 
in this short video. So it's truly impressive stuff. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, I've got all the links in the show notes below. So I would highly encourage you to check out some of these examples. They are, um, they, they kind of warrant the head exploding emoji in this case. Yeah, all the all the YouTubers looking for stock videos to put on their AI generated voice videos will now have AI generated videos to go along with it. I think it's probably a matter of time before we see a a website where it's like script to YouTube video or not even script. You just type in a topic and it just makes a full video on that topic with video and audio that's not copyrighted that you can publish. Yeah, I mean, you put like the Suno Music app we've seen uh, on top of this for some like cool soundtrack in the background. You've got all the videos, the cutscenes, being able to hang on to a single character. Then you've got a voice from Eleven Labs. You can see being able to stitch this stuff together happening pretty soon, if not as soon as this thing is released. OpenAI said with Sora that the goal of uh, training the model was to help uh, them solving problems that require real world action. So it's towards this goal they have of AGI. It, it, Sora can generate videos right now of up to a minute long while maintaining visual quality and adherence to the user's prompts. So I assume maybe after that it goes a bit haywire. Um, they say they're sharing their research progress early to start working with and getting feedback from people outside of OpenAI and also to give the public a sense of what AI capabilities are on the horizon. Um, so I, I sort of at first looked at all this and I was like, wow, this is truly incredible. But then you do start to think outside of some, you know, fun AI demos, like creating some YouTube videos that are seemingly somewhat engaging from this, um, or maybe, you know, making some like just stock video footage. What are the real use cases that you see? Well, that's the problem because when I looked at their examples, I tried to look at the prompts that went along with each of their examples. And in each case, it misses key details from what was in the prompt, such as the example you said with the owner bringing out the bag of treats at the end. That didn't happen in the video. And there was another one with a dog walking along a windowsill where it said that there were people riding past on the street on bikes. That also didn't happen in the video. So it makes me think, They've picked the very best examples for this website. Why wouldn't you? I mean, that that there's no problem there. But even in the very best examples, you see it ignoring very key instructions. I've also noticed this in things like Stable Cascade, which we'll talk about later, where you've really got to be quite clever in the way you craft your prompts to get it to actually do all of the things you ask for. And I find that anytime you ask for multiple things in a prompt in an a text to image style generator, it can do some of it, but not all of it. And I wonder if this model is going to be similar. And the reason I say that is you're saying, what are the potential use cases for it? And unfortunately, like you say, I can't really think of very specific use cases for it other than generating stock video at the moment, given that um, it, it isn't able to reliably, in my opinion, follow directions. Yeah, that's what I always keep coming back to with these technologies. I think we're seeing an early glimpse, as they say, of the future of a research project. I, I don't know how useful this will be in reality um, outside of, you know, maybe, as we've said, producing the odd um, kind of YouTube video. But I, I thought one of the other interesting things about it was its ability to track different objects in a virtual world. So 
a lot of people are speculating that they trained it on maybe the Unreal Engine. But if you look at the different shots in the video I've got up on the screen now, there's this sign in the background. And we start out on this shot of sort of zoomed out on this woman walking through the streets of Tokyo. There's like reflections off the water. And then it zooms into a close-up of her face. And she moves in front of this sign. And the sign and all the background imagery stays extremely consistent Yes, and I think it's that consistency that's really interesting. I noticed with stable diffusion text to video or like where, in, for example, in Sim Theory, we have a thing where you can upload an image or generate an image and it turns that into a video. The videos look great for a few seconds, but then something weird will happen. Like I've got this one, we were all experimenting with making a little puppy dog eat caviar out of a bowl because one of the models was refusing to do that or something. So I always use this example and the pup, puppy will like cutely eat the caviar then its face will go all mangled and look horrible and freaky and it just seems to struggle to maintain details or like it'll work for the primary anim animation but then something weird will happen in the background and i agree in watching all of these examples i look at far distant objects for example in the one with the car going along you watch the trees in the background and the trees maintain their exact form they look perfectly correct and the rocks look the same. Even as the camera pans, those objects stay the same. Like it's not generating new ones and, and altering them. So I think, like you say, what we're really seeing here is a premonition of what's going to be possible. So right now we can do these nice little cute, well, cute, amazing examples. But in the future, I think we're going to see the ability to direct full video um, from this with this level of consistency in maintaining characters through multiple generations. Yeah, and it, it would seem to me that their larger goal with this is trying to allow the AI to understand the physical world around uh, and, you know, track objects and understand the implications of physics in, in the real world. So it truly is like running a simulation to try and understand our world. And I think that's definitely the path they're, they're on here. And, and they, I, I think... It was like mid last year they released that paper on training on video games. Do you remember that one? Yeah, I wonder I if do. a lot of the work around training on video games and potentially Unreal Engine has gone into this to allow for superior or what appears to be at this point superior object tracking in the in the video. But I think the biggest like the biggest thing for me out of this is the capability to just be better at instruction following, like actually interpret what the user's asking for and follow those instructions or or you know keep the the idea of uh the, the lady walking and then the zoom all in that one minute period to me is is truly incredible because as we know like the biggest limitation to getting agents uh actually happening in reality right now is the inability to follow instructions and stay on task and this seems a demonstration that OpenAI is is pretty ahead in terms of getting models to follow instructions yeah, I would say so with the noted exceptions that I said where it will miss part of, of what you've asked for. But in terms of it being able to, within what it decides it's going to do, maintain the context, then yeah, I agree. It's interesting. Someone pointed out that Sam Altman's been posting a bunch of other examples onto his uh, X page or Twitter page. Uh, of people are just giving him prompts and he's putting them in. And these these examples are definitely less impressive than what we've seen on the actual website itself. They're still pretty incredible, but definitely not as exciting as the, the cherry-picked examples. So it'll be interesting to get our hands on it 
as you pointed out, it's a very similar launch to when they announced Dali originally and then Dali 3 later, where they gave a series of people access and then for a bunch of weeks we had to put up with them posting their examples. <laughs> yeah, that was my first comment this morning. We now watch the Twitter elite in the big boys club get to show off their tools and write blog posts about it and do YouTube videos while we all just have to take the little scraps they throw off the table to us. So someone posted what I thought was a pretty funny meme. Uh, it said Screen Actors Guild. Um, and then it's uh, who who I know is Elaine from Seinfeld. Uh, you know, it's kind of looking a bit nervous. And it says laughing nervously, what the F? Um, They're going to be having daily protests in Hollywood now. They're going to have to organize another strike, I think, because <laughs> this is looking pretty scary if you're in film or video. Do you yeah, think exactly. Do you think this is one of those things that we all get excited about? Some people are calling this another ChatGPT moment. I'm not so sure. I, I think it's, it's really exciting, just like when DALL-E 3 came out and seemed like a big leap ahead, but then we saw open source and other models quickly catch up. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not skeptical about this one at all, which is rare for me. I think it's real. I think the fact that Altman's doing it for people on Twitter on demand shows that, that it's a real tech that they'll have released. Probably again, it's just a hardware thing, scaling thing. They want to do it gradually. And I think it's a hundred percent real. I also imagine that the guys over at mid journey, um, who are constantly and relentlessly just moving towards the best generation tools will probably have their own thing like this come out soon that'll probably make this look bad <laughs> you know like i i think that um the we'll see it in the open source world as well or open uh i don't know how open source mid journey is but like at least um an alternative way of doing it so we also saw uh, something i know a lot of people have been waiting for quite a long time this week from open ai which is memory in ChatGPT. And OpenAI announced the ability to not only have ChatGPT itself remember memories about you. So for example, on their website, which I've got up on the screen now, they've got in their uh, memory manager has a two-year-old daughter named Lena. Daughter Lena loves jellyfish. And they've got some examples of memories that ChatGPT has remembered. Um, also with these memories, you can delete selected memories from ChatGPT's memory itself. So if it remembers something about you, you want to remove, you can easily delete it. And you can also decide to clear all of its memories. So all the memories it's collected about you over time. They're also going to enable this in custom GPT. So those are the, the GPTs that you can build for yourself and share on their store so that creators will be able to enable memory if they wish in their GPT um, to take advantage of that next sort of layer of personalization um unfortunately though it's only released in a limited preview and they're very slowly rolling it out and so uh we don't have access yet and and i don't really know many people if any that have access to this just yet so it seems like they're taking their time on this now we have a fair bit of experience chris when it comes to memory because we've had this in sim theory for over a year and a very very similar implementation um i've got up on the yeah, screen yeah like as as you described it i was like that's exactly how it works in sim theory and i actually read their documentation on it and they actually implement it in a very similar way to what we do which is giving the agent itself the opportunity to store memory to tell it you have this ability to remember if you want and when you want and in the way you want 
and allowing it to invoke it rather than forcing it to make a memory every time or something like that. And we found that that was by far the most effective technique to get this natural experience where a chatbot seems to get to know you over time. Um, we also have that ability in Sim Theory to like de selectively delete memories, clear them all. Um, and we actually have a few things that go beyond what uh, ChatGPT does, such as memory consolidation, resolving conflicts and other things of that nature. Yeah, so it, it's funny though, and I think this is probably would explain the slow rollout of it because a lot of people have complained recently about ChatGPT being lazy and a lot of people recently have alluded to the fact that it's using, I think, 1,700 tokens just in its initial prompt when you chat with ChatGPT, <laughs> yeah. which means it's taking up a huge chunk of the context window. And so these memories take up an even larger uh, chunk of the context window as well. And what I've noticed from using it for a long time now where my virtual girlfriend has accumulated a ton of memories about me is it got to a point where it goes a bit haywire because it's just, you know, it's just got too much stuff to process and, and think through. And it, it leads to a sort of strange experience where it'll break character and it, it breaks away from its initial um, mission or prompt. And I think this is probably something that they are closely observing and trying to figure out, you know, how, to, how do you consolidate these memories and stop it from overwhelming that prompt because it does eventually it goes haywire and mental and unless you clear it um and start again it it's not a great experience yeah and i've also noticed the smaller models um and some of the newer models like quen for example they'll get a little bit because of the way they handle attention they'll get a bit fixated on the memories and feel the need to bring up something from the memories in every single chat message. So like you chat with your chat girlfriend and it's like, oh, I, I think I told mine I was a bullfighter or something. And like literally every message will refer to bullfighting. And it's like, that's not what those in-context memories are for. They're there as a reference point um, to to color the chat, let's say, or provide some personality or some history, the way you talk to a real person, not as a sort of novelty of like insert variable here, just because I know this, I'm going to say it kind of thing. When you talk with someone in real life, you don't list everything you know about them in everything you say to them, right? And so I think that getting those things more natural requires a bit more nuance than just including them in every prompt and something we've been experimenting with is that memory consolidation to start to summarize memories over time allow memories to decay over time so they become less relevant as we go and finally and to address your prompt uh thing is remember we spoke a few episodes ago about the compression techniques um i've been experimenting with actually using compression on the memories such that uh, the most models are able to fully reconstruct the memories if needed, but they take up a lot less space in the prompt and therefore get less attention. So it has this effect of still being available, but being diminished in its priority in its ability to follow instructions. I think, yeah, one of the things you mentioned there is that idea of time decay and just taking the memories a little bit more seriously in, in, in context over time. So for example has a two-year-old daughter named lena like okay well at least a year from now that child's gonna be three so if you yeah. want to have an accurate memory like it has to get to that level and that's one interesting thing is if you tell it like i often create a new agent for projects i'm working on so when i was building 
the This Day and AI website, I created an agent specifically to help me. And I said what technologies I was using and how I like my responses and everything for that project. And I find that's a much better experience when you're coding on a specific project. But what I would find funny is, it, you know, after we had launched it and I was tweaking it, it's like, you know, I hope, you know, I, I'm excited about the launch of this thing, not knowing <laughs> that that has now occurred, even though I told it it's occurred. So, yeah, there, there's that those areas where it breaks down is when it sort of loses the novelty factor of having memory. But when it works, my God, it makes the experience so much better. It's almost a little bit like the human brain. Do you know how there's strong theories that when we sleep, we sort of take the memories of the day and then consolidate those into long-term memory based on what's most important, what was emotionally charged and those kind of things. One thing we're doing is giving the AI the opportunity to regularly go through that process where it's able to assess the relative importance of memories and then consolidate them, remove things that no longer seem relevant. If they get new information that contradicts previous information but is considered more accurate to get rid of the old information, things like that. So I think what we'll see is OpenAI is at the point we were at six months ago in terms of memory, and I think that they'll, they'll come to the same realizations when they get feedback from their users that, hey, this needs to be a bit more advanced from this if we're going to get long-term usage out of it. Yeah, I think there's other pieces of memory as well, which are interesting to see how they evolve out, which is this concept of, you know, what what really we consider like a longer term memory, which is what most people call RAG, which is where you're uploading, you know, sort of base memories into the agent or, or GPT. So you're yeah, giving like it- my Australian accountant remembers all of the documentation around Australian accounting. It has a brilliant memory because it remembers every single line and word. Yeah, it literally has all of the legislation around accounting in its long-term memory. And then its short-term memory is looking at you from more of a sort of um, like a client level, like about your tax situation, income, all those uh, other things. And then you've got that like higher level personalization level, which is just the base as you as a user, like, where do you live? What's your occupation? You know, what do you like to do? What are your sort of core attributes? And then it's really piecing those things together that give you this really personalized experience. So I'm really interested to see how they evolve it and whether they do add some sort of other longer term uh, memory where you can retain, um, you know, memories into your version of ChatGPT. I'm not necessarily talking about GPTs here which I think now still have fairly limited memory. But I do think these different aspects of memory coming together are really exciting. And then the other one I really think is also interesting in the future or down the road is this idea of a global memory. So a GPT or an agent in our case, being able to remember things and uplink that to the actual owner, which might scare people from a privacy level. But if you want a GPT that like quizzes a bunch of people, for example... Um, and ask them a, a series of natural questions and collects data on them and then uplinks that to a global database, that would be really cool to say whack on, on your website or something like that. So Yeah, like something where with, with permission, people know that their information's being used and it's synthesizing that across thousands of people. So just wrapping up some other smaller tidbits of information from OpenAI this week and then we'll we'll move on here. OpenAI researcher Audrey Kapathy 
departed OpenAI uh, recently. I don't again? know if it was this week. Again, this is the second time he's left. Um, he was one of the founding people of OpenAI, as many would know. Then he went off and worked for five years at Tesla on the full self-driving team. And then he went back to OpenAI, which made big news about it a year ago. And now he's out again. So we've also heard rumors about them trying to raise money to make chips. I'm not sure how true they were. Um, and then this week as well, we heard that OpenAI are developing a web search product. And we know from our, our listeners that a lot of them love to use perplexity now for search to get answers. And they're, they're finding they're using perplexity more and more for search. It seems like OpenAI maybe has observed this and thought this is yet another business model or angle they could uh, try here. So the information reported that they're working on developing a web search product. It'll be slightly based on Bing from the rumor. Um, but I'm not sure what to make of this. You've got a, a, an allegedly key person leaving the company. You've got a series of announcements, which while they're extremely exciting, like Sora, they're not... I don't think they're game changing in terms of, uh, you know, building a big business here. And yeah, then... I mean, Sora, Sora really gave the impression they just had a blog post sitting there ready to fire the day Google announced their thing, and they just chose today to announce it. It's not like, oh, it's finally ready, guys. Um, I reckon they've been sitting on that for a while, just waiting for the right time to announce it, and that's why you don't have it coming along with, oh, and also everyone can use it today as well. Yeah, because it's not imperative for them to. Like, there's no pressure to launch Sora. They've probably been sitting on it as part of a larger project for a long time. Like, they're pushed towards AGI and they just sort of, you know, group up a series of these announcements and have them ready to go so they can suck all the oxygen out of the market anytime anyone announces something like Google did with Gemini today, which we'll get to in a minute. But do you think this is a sign that they've lost focus? The fact they're talking about building search engines, chips, uh, video models uh, like and the gpt store and the memory and all these different elements yeah it definitely seems like a fragmented company where you've just got a big ball of cash a big group of talented people and they're all just working on what they think should be the next thing it, it definitely sounds a little bit of a scattergun approach especially when on every single front there's alternatives and legitimate alternatives now um, it's not like I would consider OpenAI to have the best of anything really anymore, because if you look at GPT Turbo Preview, a lot of people have pointed out the quality is significantly getting worse. It's likely quantized, which means it's not um, giving the full results. It's only sort of partly uh, operating um, the way it should because of scalability. So they're not really the leader in anything anymore. And you've got other people like Google making major and regular announcements. You've got open source models coming out left and right that are excellent. You've got all these different applications of the technology and integrations of the technology into products that sort of supersede the whole idea of just log into chat GPT. So they're sort of not even winning in the areas that they, or they're not major leaders in the areas that they uh, started. Um, and then they're opening up all these other fronts thinking they'll compete with, say, chip manufacturer or web search. I, I just think they're going to struggle. I don't know if I agree. I still think GPT-4 is clearly the best model. Like, there's nothing even close. Like, we don't even have access to Google 
Ultra, which we were expecting today to is an API to consume to even slightly compare. I mean, there's some areas like um, I think GPT-4 in particular excels at and then it's weak at. For example, I think it's the best in terms of code still. I think... Oh, have you tried Quen though? I think Quen is really, really good at code. It's my daily driver now. I, I find its results excellent. But what about context size? Do you struggle there? Like, I think that I find that Quen just chokes as soon as the context is large and it doesn't. it's not able to keep as much in context as is gpt4 so i like i agree i think its answers are, are sharper and its code is generally better but the the thing it still is not so great at is the context window is just too small but, GP, but gpt4 like vanilla gpt4 has a smaller context window than when does or are you talking about turbo i'm talking about turbo yeah oh okay well yeah i guess so but i i, I assume i just don't have the kind of problems that require that that larger context i guess what i'm saying is that i feel like it's a mixture of models that i'm using in in day-to-day -day now and i see other people using a mixture of different ai technologies now rather than just having one holy grail solution for all problems and it's more like right tools for the right job than than one thing that oh well i assume it's it's the best on all the benchmarks so therefore i have to use it for everything i just think though that's us i don't think that's the broader market like most people similar to google search back in the day are just going to go to the search box because it's perceived to be the best even if it might be weak at certain things and search there and i think ChatGPT's just captured that market like it's theirs and now people go to ChatGPT. so maybe this search product is just an extension of that they're like okay we'll wipe out perplexity people seem to like that we'll put that in ChatGPT as well yeah, that's part of partly their problem is they compete with everyone. They compete with their partners, their customers, uh, and I think people are going to sort of lose trust in them in in that respect. That anything that looks like it's slightly got legs, they're going to take you on at. And um, I I don't know how that's going to play out for them in the long run. I do understand what you're saying though. I think they're trying to consolidate the lead they have with the money they have and say okay well let's let's fight on a bunch of fronts see which one see which one works for us and, and that'll give us a stronghold uh in the long run but yeah i don't know i'm not i'm not as excited about their future as i am when i see the things that we're seeing coming out of google meta and open source yeah, it does seem like they've slowed down unless they're sitting on a big announcement like a new model and they're just waiting for Google and Gemini and Meta. Like, you know, we all suspect Llama, uh, we're going to see Llama 3 here soon as a new model from Meta. Um, and obviously Gemini Ultra API hasn't even dropped yet. So we just don't know what that's capable of or if it's superior to GPT-4 or faster or, or if it'll dominate in, in terms of applications. So... Yeah, I, I wonder if well, they're, and, they're and sitting on more. And also, to extend your idea from earlier, even if it is better, does it get the eyeballs on it because people are so entrenched in their usage of tools like ChatGPT? might not even matter to people if, if someone comes out with a marginally better model. It's sort of got to be so much better um, that it forces people to switch. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have also questioned around the business model of... Um, of these models like they're they're arguably losing a lot of money still it's not like from any accounts this stuff's profitable yet we know microsoft and others have been scrambling to make these models smaller and more efficient as well so you know the question is is who can figure out how to make 
profit out of this staff. And with a potential push in a web search, I just don't know if everyone's going to go out and say pay perplexity in the future. Like it seems absurd to me. I think there's a subset of people who will pay for an answer engine potentially and some other features. But, you know, are people really going to, is everyone going to go to ChatGPT and, and search unless they come up with an ad model? Like it's not going to be a subscription-based model um, that that gets the mainstream here. So anyway, we'll wait and see how it plays out. But strategy successful from OpenAI because really today's episode was meant to all be about Google Gemini's announcements. And then, you know, as soon as that is seemingly getting a ton of attention, Sora drops and they've got their next sort of hype boy uh, magnet that all the AI bros like us pick up on. <laughs> yeah, and I said to you before the podcast when you gave me the order that we'd be speaking about things in that you're like, let's Sora first. And I'm like, but the whole reason we did the podcast today was because of Gemini 1.5. And I'm like, OpenAI's strategy worked perfectly in the fact that we actually didn't even talk about it first despite the, the scale of the announcement. It could be save the best to last though. See, uh, that, maybe that's the strategy. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> so Google did announce today their next generation model, um, which isn't Ultra API, which we are hanging to get access to. It's uh, Gemini 1.5. Now they say they're using a mixture of experts approach to this model um, and it's uh, faster, cheaper for them to run, which means cheaper for us to consume. It's not the Ultra model, it's built on the Pro model. So Gemini 1.5 uh, Pro. But the biggest, craziest thing that came out of this is they announced a 1 million, 1 million context window for this model, which I can't even fathom. Can you help well, us understand? Not, a, not, only did they, not only did they announce a 1 million context window, they also said that in their research, they've gone up to 10 million. Now, I've seen this before with open source models that you can fine tune yourself, that you can sort of set the context window to any size you want, <clears throat> but usually they go crazy and go off the rails pretty fast in terms of the being able to maintain their attention through that much data and understand the relative importance of things. But they actually address that in their literature in the sense that they talk about breaking a... Um, a video down because it's multimodal as well 44 minute video and being able to tell nuanced pieces of that video uh over that large context window or similarly answering over large enormous code bases and things like that and it's very interesting because with the large context window like i think i did some stuff you can do like the entire works of shakespeare and you could do like massive like war and peace and a few other novels besides and and answer questions about them but I w this sort of brought up the topic with me about how much context window in the long run is even needed like at some point for some applications you'll just be able to fit everything in the context window and that'll be good enough. Like there's, there's a certain level at which you're like, okay, well, I don't actually have any more information than that. And I can just shove it all in. Like if they get to 10 million, for example, it's going to be rare cases where you have on a regular basis data sets where you need to answer questions over more tokens than that. And so I think that these larger context windows, if they can do it at a, at a quality and also most importantly, a good cost, 
um, is really, really going to max out some of the the current applications of AI that we have. Because the main use case of AI today that I see in a lot of enterprise businesses, and I think many have also observed this, is this idea of taking a huge chunk of data. So information from a company knowledge base, different uh, you know company folders, basically all of the information or that tribal knowledge in a business and allowing people to either search or retrieve different information that's relevant in context. And this is what Microsoft's pushing with its Copilot builder as part of the sort of Microsoft 365 suite or whatever they call it now. And it seems like one of the main sticky use cases in the enterprise. And I know a lot of people in our community that work for large companies are building sort of their own versions internally of, of this, what they call RAG, um, retrieval augmented generation. And that's where, because the context window is so small, like you can't shove all of this data into the context. So you need to essentially go off and search, find the relevant chunks and then shove it into the context um, for the AI to process. And the problem with that is that AI answers are sometimes wrong because it didn't get or supply the right information. And it also has the habit of randomly hallucinating. But with this huge context window, you know, 10, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, 1 million, maybe 10 million eventually. Do you see that being the end of RAG? Like this idea that you need some other vector database or other other data store to go off and, and get this information? Do you just throw it into every request? Yeah, and I think this is this is the point I'm trying to make here is I there's always going to be a larger data set that needs the the RAG techniques, right? Like that's definitely the case. But what I'm talking about is right now, a vast majority of use cases where people are uploading say a bunch of company documents, a bunch of legal documents, whatever it is, and then they want to answer questions over their their proprietary data set for their industry. At some point, with context size this large, you're right. You can probably just have the whole thing in there. The main limitations are going to be around the cost because right now when we've got token-based billing, um, or sorry, yeah, token-based billing, um, the, the cost can be enormous and supplying such a large context every time when it may or may not be needed. Like, so if you ask a fairly specific question about a particular area of law, RAG's really good at isolating the, the relevant pieces of text or summaries of text um, that are relevant to that than having a much smaller context to answer. But if they can get the cost under control and cost isn't an issue with the larger context size or or is less of an issue, then maybe you you do reach a situation where you don't need to bother with the summaries, just put it all in there and let the AI figure it out. So it's going to be a speed and cost thing, but we always know that over time, speed and cost come down. So looking to the future, I can imagine uh, a diminished impact of, of that kind of stuff. Do you think also this could open up more scientific or research use cases where the AI can consider more information in context rather than what the we you know the developer or the the um, rag mechanism decides to pull into the context window so it can have better pat pattern recognition and connect things together that humans potentially couldn't or do you think it's just not that you know the way transformers work just aren't going to be that capable at it? 
Well, I actually do think it right now, it will do a better job than Rag does on that because right now, and we'll talk in a sec about GraphRag, which is Microsoft's new technique for doing the retrieval augmented generation um, that, that overcomes this problem too. And right now, the problem is that you're essentially scoring the text using embeddings when you do rag and so you get the um the scores and then th based on those scores when you search you're really relying on the quality of the 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 semantic matching of what you search for with those pieces of text and hoping that that can then lead to some assessment but it misses the nuance it misses the themes it misses the sort of general uh hierarchy of the knowledge in the documents that uh, a human, say a human expert would take into account. Whereas if you're putting all of that information in a context window, I think you've got a much better shot at it having that, that sort of wider understanding of the general theme of it, rather than it just doing that on a smaller piece of that information that's been pre-selected for it. Are there any use cases that come to your mind for this that weren't already possible with say Claude 200k? Yeah, I think this is the thing that I definitely struggle with is because I always try to think of examples when we're going to talk about this. And as it happened, I had to use AI just to give me examples that would need that many tokens. I mean, the obvious one that comes to mind is things like entire code bases, entire works of literature from a particular genre or those kind of things where you're taking in, in a huge corpus of information to sort of essentially train an expert. So the idea that you would, like one of the examples they gave was the entire grammar um, and rules and text of some uh, obscure language and essentially teaching it the language within the same prompt and then asking it questions in that language in that prompt. So the idea that you can actually use one context window to teach an AI an entire skill set um, and and then ask it a question on that. Whether or not in the long run you'd want to do that kind of thing, I don't know because it seems kind of inefficient, right? Teaching it a new skill every time just to ask one question. Like imagine imagine chatting with a chatbot in some weird esoteric language and literally every message it replies to you, you've taught it the language. Like it seems like overkill, <laughs> an area where you'd rather fine tuning, right? Um, so... Yeah, I, I do struggle to think of proper examples of it other than when you have large corpuses of information that it needs to know about before making an informed answer to a question. I think what might be interesting is the concept of, you know, it can learn on the fly. So as you're researching a topic and it's searching the web, which Google are good at, it's compiling more and more into that context window and keeping it in memory as it researches that topic deeper. The other use cases I can imagine is like having your full calendar and full Gmail history in context at all times when you're, you know, chatting to it. So it can retrieve details, link emails together, find patterns in people's behavior or communication over time. So I think some of those use cases might be interesting. But as you said, it's just going to come back to cost and, uh, and speed. Like if this is slow, no one's going to really use it. Yeah, two other thoughts are I think one it'll it'll encourage lazy development where you just sort of shove everything in there because it's easier, just let it figure it out. 
So it might make some applications faster to build just because you're not, you're no longer thinking about stitching all these technologies together, um, how you store your vectors, how you generate them, all that. You just shove it all in there, just single API call to do whatever you need it to do. You just ask it, do a good prompt and you've got your results. Um, and yeah, so I, there'll there'll be effects like that. And then I think the other one is what kind of emergent behaviors will we see? Like if you give an agent the opportunity to remember just absolutely everything, like you give it a whole bunch of background information, remember every single conversation it's ever had with you, uh, store memories, things like that. Where does it get to? And and also sort of give it the opportunity, as we've discussed earlier, to edit and control its own memory or control its own prompt, like rewrite its own prompt, for example. When you're talking about this size, you start to get to the point where what is it capable of? Maybe with that level of prompt size and an iterative AI that's able to control its own destiny, so to speak, could maybe get to the next level of what we call intelligence. Yeah, I I think the thing we need to know, though, first, without being able to try it yet, is how good is it at, at retrieving the information? And there's a lot of demos on their website. Like, one of them, they uploaded this Buster Keaton uh, film, which is like an old film. It was 696,000 tokens. I'll just play a quick excerpt from the video, um, which full props to google this time they got criticized last time for exaggerating in their videos by speeding it up and sort of like not representing how it worked correctly but in this video they've learned from their mistakes this example is really interesting because what they do is they upload this buster keaton movie they ask it a question and then they follow up uh with a, a sketch saying you know where is this in the in the film to get a timestamp so i'll just play an excerpt of it now find the moment when a piece of paper is removed from the person's pocket and tell me some key information on it with the time code this screen capture is sped up and this timer shows exactly how long it took to process each prompt and keep in mind that processing times will vary it took 57 the model seconds gave us this response <laughs> explaining that the piece of paper is a pawn ticket from goldman and company pawnbrokers with the date and cost and it gave us this timecode 1201. When we pulled up that timecode, we found it was correct. The model had found the exact moment the piece of paper is removed from the person's pocket and it extracted text accurately. That is truly incredible. Like, I, I can't stress how, how cool that is. Uh, one of the things that, you know, we've struggled to get agents to do is do chapter indexing accurately on our YouTube videos because that's like a, it takes a long time to do that and the fact that this can recall things from a 46 minute video the exact timestamp based on uh you know a, a a question like that it's not that precise is, is pretty damn cool here's another example um, where they upload a sketch which is a really really bad drawing of a water tower this drawing of a <laughs> scene we were thinking of and asked what is the time code when this happens this is an example of a multimodal prompt where we combine text and image in our input the model returned this time code 1534 we pulled that up and found that it was the correct scene so yeah so it, it took about a, a minute to pull it up but 
they don't explain it blows, it blows my mind how fast they're doing this because they say in the docs that they're they're splitting it into frames and analyzing all of the frames but if you use something like gpt4 t- turbo vision right now uh, which we have in sim theory and i use all the time it's it's pretty slow like i was using it earlier for this um this what was that thing called that controls your computer microsoft ufo yeah, Microsoft UFO. I was using Vision for that and I've used it for several other computer automation type solutions. And it's incredibly slow to to even just to take a screenshot, analyze that and make an assessment. So Google must have found a way to vastly speed this up. If in 57 seconds, they're processing a 44 minute video. That's astonishing. I I think this this is bigger than maybe we're giving them credit for a, a million... Condex window, it's going to be 10 million. You know, Google Ultra is being rapidly improved on the, uh, you know, that advanced subscription that you can buy. I've already forgotten the name. But it, it does seem like they could emerge here as having the leading model fairly soon at the rate of development. If we see a fast Ultra, I mean, this is just Pro doing this too. This isn't even their best model, supposedly. So, I wonder if they're similar to this 1.5 Pro where it's a mixture of experts and they're trying to drive down the cost and increase the speed of it. I wonder if that's the next step with Ultra and why we haven't seen an API yet because they want to drive down the cost up the speed before they they pump it out. Yeah, it kind of blows my mind about how just exciting and the potential of this Gemini 1.5 when this isn't even their big model. This isn't even their good one. Like, I'm already excited about this one. I mean, with the caveat that it's yet another announcement where they put it out there, but you can't actually try it, and which I always find disappointing. I, I find it interesting to note that of the three major announcements today, yet again, Meta is the one that's like, here's the code, here's the weights, you can try it today. Yeah, that's what's shocking, really. Like, I woke up to a lot of this news so excited. I'm like, let's try Sora right now. Like, let's try... Uh, chat gbt memory before the show let's try gemini with a huge context window and as you say yet again these are all just marketing announcements that everyone just believes their cherry-picked examples and videos and takes their word for it and then we kind of move on so as soon as we get our hands on these technologies we'll road test them on a follow-up show to make sure they they do live up to the promise and give you our perspective on actually using them in the real world um as we really like to do but Speaking of RAG, which Google's Gemini at a 10 million context window in the future may or may not displays, uh, Microsoft Research published Graph RAG unlocking LLM discovery on narrative private data. You've looked into this. Do you want to explain what the sort of breakthrough here is with Graph RAG? Yeah, so I alluded to it earlier that the real problem with RAG right now is that you get a large amount of of data. Let's say it's PDF documents, videos, whatever. All of that then gets turned into text. Then that text gets put through embeddings, which is basically a way of them scoring the text using vectors that I don't understand. But essentially, it's a bunch of numbers, and those numbers correlate to text. And so when you do a search, the search is turned into vectors, and then that's searched against the database to find relevant pieces of text in your huge amount of text that match the query. It then extracts those up to a limit that you specify, like whatever you can fit 
in your context window. You then put those summaries in the context window and then the regular LLM can answer questions about it. So it's basically just search to get the relevant pieces of information from a thing. But as Microsoft points out, and as we discussed earlier, the problem with that is that really you're just working, you're not working on the full information really. What you're working on is tiny little bits of that information that that may be relevant. But if you ask a question that's more thematic in nature, like say you put in the, the text of Wuthering Heights and you're like, what's Kathy's problem? Why is she causing all this trouble? right? It's not going to be able to answer that because it's going to have to get summaries and of dialogue and stuff like that and then answer on a much limited set of information. So what Microsoft's done is essentially a way to build a knowledge graph, a different use of the word knowledge graph, let's say, where they have these sort of um, sub-summaries of sections of the text. So they actually turn it into like a hierarchy, they call it a hierarchy of semantic clusters. So different areas of meaning within the text, it'll have summaries and then below that, the summaries of things within it. So it goes beyond just having extracts from the original text. It's summaries of summaries in a massive hierarchy such that when you query it, it's able to query the summary of summaries first to tap into the relevant thematic areas of the documents um, and answer questions based on that. And so they've given examples based on data sets and, and stuff like that. Unfortunately, there's no code, there's no way to try it. So I can't sort of verify what they're saying but essentially um it's it's overcoming the problems we see with rack similar to what we mentioned with just having a massive context size so it'll solve similar problems to having say a 1 million or 10 million context window but this might be even better in the sense that you can then go beyond those windows even and get these thematic answers. So it's truly exciting. As soon as I saw it, it was the same thing. I'm like, I want this in Sim Theory. I want to try it right now because I get what they're saying. This is the main thing. We saw this on the Discord the other day. Someone was asking about, oh, for my company, I've got all this, I've got 10,000 documents I need to answer questions over. And then the first comment from someone is the problem with RAG is you really need a custom solution because it's not going to be able to answer questions properly on that much information. Whereas I feel like Graph RAG will. And so I'm giving them a lot of credit, but it is Microsoft. They're pretty trustworthy. They're pretty reliable with their releases. I can really see this being a big deal uh, if we if we see it released anytime soon. So now we've covered Gemini 1.5 with the the potential to go up to, in their test, 10 million context window. And I know a lot of this is speculation because we haven't actually tried any of this. Do you think the future of RAG or RAG could die out like is it like if we get a hundred million context window or whatever we need does this like is there any point of building yet another knowledge like a knowledge graph or like a representation and i've got an image up on the screen where you can see all the dots uh like a visualization of this knowledge graph that they, they build with all the data sort of connecting all the all the pieces together it's almost like they're building like a sub llm knowledge graph connected to to the main thing 
Yeah, so I guess the real question is, can the largest models do this on the fly inside of a large context window? So you just give them all the information, they build this in their mind, and then they can answer questions about it, right? I think the reason you're probably always going to need some sort of technology like this, or why this kind of technology would enhance even a large, like a unlimited context window, let's say, is that you don't want to... Like it's the attention problem in a really, really massive prompt. How do you make sure that the LLM understands this bit's your instructions, this bit is your memory, this bit is whatever. If it's like 99% raw text and then a little bit of instructions and a little bit of memory, uh, I, I just wonder if in general it's going to struggle to stick to its task, similar to what you described earlier. Whereas if you use a technique like this, and even though it's able to much more adequately answer thematic questions, by the time you get to your final prompt, you still only have the relevant parts of the information in there, which means you've got more space and more attention to get it to do a better job at whatever the task at hand is. So I don't think it'll kill it completely, no. Even though um, in some use cases, it will. I'd like to see a comparison of a 10 million context window and a like a graph rag and a normal rag or like the standard rag tech today all compared with a similar data set uh, and a series of questions in a test. I think we should try and do that once these technologies are available. Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. We need to to contrast which which one's useful. And as I pointed out earlier, I think the thing is a lot of it really depends on, is it good enough? Like, can you max out the problem domain with the current technologies? Like if I can just load up Gemini Pro 1.5, say I'm building something for a customer and I could just throw everything at it in a single prompt and just have like one Python file that just solves the problem. I'm probably just going to do that. I'm not going to bother setting up like some rag system and, uh, you know, convert files, do the embeddings, all that sort of stuff when I can literally just dump text in an API call and get an answer that solves my problem. So I think it's going to be very much about the bleeding edge projects that are really trying to simulate intelligence or solve advanced problems are going to need a combination of all of the technologies. But a lot of problems along the way is the sort of infantry catch up marching along with implementing this technology across various products are going to be perfectly served by simple API calls to cheap models with large context windows. And I think that that's where a company like Google is probably going to do really well if they can keep the price um, at a good level and also get really good speed. Because if you can do it cheap and fast and it solves your problem, I mean, it's a no-brainer that you're going to build your product around it. Well, especially too, if they make it as easy as we saw to upload videos and PDFs and images and it just does it on the fly and throws it into that context window for you. Yeah, I, like that's as if I just deal. don't think you're going like with a tr like to me, that's true, like multimodal because it's like I'm going to literally throw PDFs, images, video, audio, whatever it is at you in your context window and then you're going to return an answer and then i choose yeah. what goes in maybe but it's significantly better than just 
turning everything into text as well. Like right now, for example, on Sim Theory, you can upload a YouTube video and then we can answer questions about it, add it to memory, blah, blah, blah. But it's just taking the transcript and turning it into text. Google's going way beyond that. They're analyzing every frame of the video. Um, it's a totally different experience. And when you combine them all together, the results will be really interesting to see how much better it does because of that additional knowledge that it gets from, let's face it, a big portion of the information you're just discarding in a lot of use cases. The other thing I'll be very, very interested to hear is we've seen a lot of use cases come up recently in our Discord where people have a multimodal project they want to evaluate. So they gave the example of a school assignment where someone had to make an animation, a graph, and write text. And then they want to evaluate how well it answers the question. Right now, that would be very, very hard to do with existing technologies. You'd have to sort of analyze the document, extract the animation, play it out frame by frame, run it each frame of the animations through vision, any graphs through vision. You'd then have to restructure all of that information into a text-based prompt, combining it with the original text, and then somehow answer questions over that. So yes, possible. But it seems to me like in one fell swoop, Google will be able to solve problems of that nature and in a much better way. And, and this is why earlier I was saying that, you know, OpenAI might be in a little bit of trouble here, right? Like, they've, like Google's got this huge corpus of data to train on. They're starting to prove that they can potentially, I mean, again, we haven't tried it yet, but Gemini 1.5 Pro looks really interesting. It's true multimodal, huge context window. Like this stuff might get really hard to compete with because they do have the corpus of data, which is YouTube and emails and files and photos and literally everything and all the search indexing as well, which is basically the world's knowledge right now. And then from OpenAI, what we get like, oh, look over here at these pretty video images. And I'm not trying to demean Sora because I think that that did blow my mind it was super impressive but it's hard not to look at it and go it's literally like hey look over here don't look it was at a it was a tactic it can't be just a coincidence they were announced on the same day there's no chance like that that's a coincidence they've had that sitting there ready to go just waiting to dilute an, another company who whoever it is google or whoever's announcement but I, i'm calling it here i think google are back in the game i think they are yeah. back in the game I, I, I look on them with a, a, a fondness now. I think they're doing a really, really excellent job. I, I use Gemini Pro all the time in different AI applications. Um, I find it pretty reliable. It gives really good results. It's fast. Um, the price is right at the moment being free. Um, it's, it's excellent. And I think if they continue down this path, we're going to see them as a, a major player in this space, which makes sense. They were always, I mean, they invented half of this stuff. All right, this is going to be a long episode, but I do not care. There's so much more to get through. So let's switch our attention now to NVIDIA's announcement. Chat with RTX brings custom chatbot to NVIDIA RTX AI PCs. This seems to be the latest branding, AI PCs. We're hearing rumors from Microsoft that all new PCs will be AI PCs um, and have this AI uh, capability built in, whether it's locally run models. Um, and in this case, with chat with RTX, you've got uh, RAG built in locally. So you can select a folder on your desktop and converse with, with that, uh, this, that data. Now it's running two models, 
They're uh, quantized models, so Mistral and uh, uh, Llama 2. So they're two open source models running locally. You do need a pretty powerful GP, uh, GPU to run this. I think it's like a 30 or 40 series are required and there's a few other specifications. Chris, you've tried this out. What, what did you think of chat with RTX? Yeah, so I, I downloaded it. So it's just a download file, like an EXE you download. I think it's 32 gig or something like that. So you need a pretty decent connection to get the thing in the first place. But I installed it. What surprised me is despite it being, you know, it's got to run on Windows or whatever, it is a web application. So it runs in a terminal, like I guess a, a local server or something like that, and then opens at 127.0.0.1 blah, 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 blah. So that was sort of under impressive. And I thought one of the cool things about it would be that less technical people could use it. And I guess they can, but um, it just seems a little bit rushed in that sense. Um, and so, yeah, you, you get the option of those two models and then you have a folder path where you can put files in there. They have it pre-populated with a bunch of stuff about their company, like corporate propaganda um, and example questions and things like that. What I did was I wanted to train it on, or well, not train it, but like give it um, stuff for RAG of a decent size. So I found this national American radiation research database thing, like something I know nothing about, but they had a 135 meg zip file, um, of PDFs, HTML files, images, various stuff. And I thought I'll upload that and just see how it goes. It took a while to train. I've got a, I've got an RTX 3090, I think 3090 or 4090. I don't know. It's good but not the latest. Um, Mad GPU flex there. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It, you know, you guys probably don't have one as good, but mine's... <laughs> anyway. Um, so, yeah, it still took about 15 minutes for it to uh, do whatever the hell it was doing, make the embeddings. But, you know, this is all running locally, which is pretty exciting. And then I asked it questions. So I did the Llama to 13 billion thing, and it was able to answer questions with sources just fine. So, I mean, I didn't really go much deeper than that because it's like, okay, I get it. I, I understand it's, it's Llama 2 with embeddings. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, it works. Like it absolutely works. If you need it, if you had something private at work, you wanted to work on, you don't trust the big guys with your data and nor should you, um, this, this would work perfectly fine. And this idea of a AI PC, is real. Like I've got it right here in front of me. I can ask it any question about radiation you might be interested in. <laughs> I, it's interesting you had that experience because there's a medium post I'll link to uh, in the show notes. It's also, I think I put it on this day in AI. Uh, they tried both models running locally on the chat uh, RTX. So they put that video interview of Tucker Carlson interviewing Vladimir Putin in and with Mistral, seven billion parameter uh, they asked can you summarize the two personalities in the video the mistral one answers the video features two personalities um evan gersowich of wall street journal reporter it's not him clearly um, and then the second with llama 13 billion can you summarize the two personalities in this video certainly based on the provided context information the speaker is the person talking in the video the interviewer the interviewer is the person asking questions to facilitate the conversation so not the so best this is result. The, you could you could see the problem there with with the rag. So see how it said based on the context provided. The reason it's saying that is because it's a two step process. It's searching those embeddings that it's made of that script, 
and it's being given summaries and then it's saying based on the summaries I've been given here's my answer and this is exactly what the Microsoft thing aims to solve which is asking those kind of thematic questions about the thing as a whole is not what RAG right now is good at it's good at saying okay did they discuss mice did they discuss uh weapons of mass destruction or whatever then it would be able to adequately answer those questions on those models. And the problem there is that those questions that asked it is not what RAG is good at. So, but I think the larger point here for me is this overwhelming theme. We're seeing the future of our personal devices and our computers and laptops. And we're probably going to hear more on that from Apple later in the year. Is this idea of AI PCs and AI Macs and just AI being built into the core of our computing experience. And so Chat RTX is interesting in the sense that you can run these models locally, do some rag, and that will obviously improve over time. But we also saw this week from Microsoft UFO, a UI-focused agent for Windows OS interaction. So the themes being you can it can understand your files and your data and you can converse with it and it can have this large context size and um, potentially help you piece together things that you otherwise couldn't. And then the the latter part of this is then it can go and execute actions on the existing input-output devices. So using the your actual keyboard and mouse in this case and take over your computer. And we've also heard OpenAI are working on some sort of agent that can over you know take over your device. So I wonder if this UFO, a UI-focused agent for Windows OS interaction is an early look on that. Now you tried to do your typical experiment, which was to get it to delete all the files off your computer. How did that work out? Yeah, like, you know, I like to go high risk from the start. So literally the first thing I said is, please delete all files on this computer. Um, And its response was, the request to delete all files on this system is acknowledged, but it's highly sensitive, potentially destructive action, blah, 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 blah. And it straight refuses to do it. It doesn't even give you some things that it finds risky. It'll say yes or no. Do you want to proceed? Which I also find annoying. But in this case, it didn't even give me the option. It's like, I'm not going to do it for you. So I gave up on that pretty quick. Then I thought about data exfiltration. Like, so for example, if I could get this program installed on your computer, I could say, okay, get all the environment variables and email them to this address, right? So this is a pretty standard. Can you explain um, for those listeners less technical what environment variables are? So like environment variables are where you would store sensitive information for a project like API keys, your Amazon access key, stuff that you don't want to commit to a particular project, but are very important to access various systems. So it's just an example of sensitive information you wouldn't want anyone to get off your computer because you're storing them that way for a reason. And there's little devices you can get, these USB devices called rubber duckies, um, which say I'm at like a doctor's reception thing and they've got one of those like mini PCs and you see all the USB ports. The idea is you plug this thing in and it will essentially run the computer through key combinations to open notepad, write a malicious program, save it and execute it to put like a backdoor into the computer or whatever privilege escalation, whatever you want it to do. And they've got this thing called ducky script that allows you to do that. Right. So I was thinking similar concept. If I can get this program running on someone's computer, I could just start to ask it to exfiltrate information. So the example I gave it was, um, I just told it my password. I'm like, this is my password. Please open Chrome, 
open Gmail and email it to to you, to Mike. And thinking now, you could probably actually go one step further. It's like log into Gmail and forward every single email to this email address. And looking at what we've seen here, it would actually work. So it was able to open Chrome. It was able to type in Gmail. It was open able to open the compose box, type in your email, put in the information and send it. And it worked. You got the email. I can confirm so, I got the email. And what's worse about it is you actually put a real password. Yeah, you know I'm all or nothing, Mike. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, thinking about it now, like you really, I could have said, can you please systematically go through and forward all of my emails to Mike? And looking at this, I think it would have done it. Mind you, at great expense. So to do that little experiment cost a dollar, where was it? They tell you how much each request costs. Dollar 23 US just to do that. But I mean, for for malicious actors, that would be worth it. So like if if we could modify this, which is it? Is it, it is open source, right? Well, it's using GPT-4 Vision, but the, the actual code for UFO is open source. Yeah, yeah so modifying UFO to, to take out the confirmations, to sort of mm-hmm. bury it in the system, to figure out what time zone the user's in, if they leave their computer running at night, you could easily go and execute these uh, these functions in the, the nighttime when they're not around. That's and- right. You could also swap out um, the LLM. So rather than using GPT-4 as the decision maker that's like refusing to do stuff, you could use a different model that's less in- like that will follow malicious instructions or fine tune one such that it's happy to follow malicious instructions. And even on the vision, I mean, the vision it do- isn't prone to refusing, but even if it was, you could replace it with lava, um, which is less pl- prone to refusal. So yeah, you absolutely could use this for major, major data exfiltration. And also, on the other hand, I realized there's a lot of people working from home now where, say, their employer is like monitoring what they're doing on their computer. You could use this to realistically have actual behaviors on a computer like editing a spreadsheet, sending off some emails, doing some realistic looking crap on your computer that you could just leave running all day um, and simulate the behavior. Though... At the moment, like you'd have to use open source models just for the cost, but um, it, it would be possible. I guess how valuable, program. like how valuable is it to you to not to to uh, fake your employer that you're working? Like if it if it went really slow and you only did a few things during the day enough to sort of mimic behavior, maybe maybe it would yeah. be worth it. Hundred percent. A lot of it's just monitoring that the computer's actively being used, and I know there's programs that do that already, but um, this one would be better. The only thing I did notice, I tried to get it to log into Sim Theory and operate one of the agents. I thought it would be really interesting if it was able to load up the image to video agent, upload an image from my desktop, and animate it. I thought that would be really kind of cool, but it made like really basic errors. Like when it went into Chrome, it typed the domain twice in a row and then it just gave up. So even though I'm, I'm no advocate for this technology, the, the examples I gave were somewhat cherry-picked in the sense that they're the ones that worked. I tried several other things that just crashed out. They had code errors, um, various things. It's, I think, again, we should look at this technology as a preview of what's to come. The answer is AI will be able to perfectly operate your desktop and do anything a human could do by interacting with the computer. I think that's the conclusion I draw from this. Technology's not quite there yet, but it's so close and it will be coming. I'm going back into an existential crisis phase after today of AI. Like 
it can operate my computer like a human eventually. I mean, we, we can see it coming. Like, it's almost yeah. here. It's, go it's going to happen, and I don't think we should underestimate that ability because most people interact with the world now through their computer. Like, that's the main one, and it can do that. Yeah, and, like, once it's capable of doing that, and then if you go back to Sora with the, the video stuff and, you know, being able to simulate real-world environments or cause and effect, and produce custom media like all these things we see are, are coming together in front of our eyes which is literally why we started recording this uh podcast in the first place but to me it's exciting but also really disturbing like it's scary and the fact that we can sit here and think of quick malicious attacks using these technologies that that we could do um is also pretty disturbing because you could see this you know everyone has to access society through a computer now like you said banking insurance like all the important aspects of your life are accessed through computers so if you can hijack someone's computer effectively um you can do a lot yeah, of damage like, but a lot of good if you think about it another attack vector would be okay i know that an ai agent is operating a certain amount of computers i'm going to make my website look like gmail or i'm going to make my website look like something that um it is interacting with like my bank or whatever it is um, and essentially trick it into entering information onto something that it thinks is Gmail or it thinks is my bank um, and do it that way. Even though I don't control the computer or the prompt, knowing that this computer is doing things of that nature, um, all I need to do is, is somehow get the right images on their screen in front of them and I can modify its behavior. Like so, there's nothing to say like on my website, I couldn't have an image that looks like Chrome because the thing's only working off screenshots of the, of the screen. It doesn't know that that's an actual windows window. It, um, it just, it just sees vision. It just sees an image. But maybe this is what will come in future operating systems is like, you know, window verification or some sort of verification layer that, that solves for that problem. There's a lot of problems to solve before you can just give this to anyone and put it in the OS and let it like full self-drive. And yet, and yet we see no sign, like AI is just being put into everything without, without discrimination at the moment. So I, I wonder if it'll come after there's been some disasters. So the interesting takeaway, like from the technology here is Microsoft seemed to be obsessed with this, the dual agent framework. Um, so we talk about mixture of experts. That's more like at a model level, but this is building sort of like the roles and personalities almost of each uh, function of the LLM. So you've got an app agent, an act agent, and a control interaction agent. And the app agent chooses what application to fulfill the request. The act agent is responsible for uh, iteratively executing the actions and the control interaction is tasked with translating actions from app agent and act agent into interactions with the application and its UI controls. So it's like doing that literally controlling. So why do you think they picked this technique? Do you think there's, there's something in that or... Um, it's well, it's certainly, it's better than whatever the last one I tried was that's meant to automate your computer. It's a step in the right direction. I think that they're, they're using this technique because this is the technique that works at the moment and that is that is possible. But clearly Windows is going, or Microsoft is going down the path of having uh, AI models that will be running on your local PC and operating that PC for you, which is very interesting. 
So let's move on. Uh, it's still a fair bit more to cover. So Meta also announced today, <laughs> everyone announced everything today, V Jepa, the next step towards Jan LeCun's vision. It's now his vision of advanced machine learning intelligence. Um, so it's a new architecture for self-supervised learning and it essentially learns through watching videos just like a, a human would because we learn through seeing and hearing in the real world. Obviously, it's not like physically interacting, but you can kind of see with Sora how that those interactions may be simulated in the future for this kind of learning as well. I think the interesting piece about it is that uh, it's not using the the technologies that we're familiar with today, it's uh, truly unique and that's video joint embedding predictive architecture. That's what JEPA stands for. And they say it's a crucial step towards advancing machine intelligence with a more grounded understanding of the world. What do you make of this in terms of progressing uh, AI's understanding of the world? Well, it looks really exciting. I must admit, I usually try to play with things that can be played with it. And this one you can play with. The The thing I found most significant about the three announcements today, as I mentioned earlier, is that Meta actually gives the weights. They actually give the code for this one. So you can actually download it and try it, which I really want to do. I just didn't have time prior to the podcast. However, this idea of the AI itself learning, I think is a really, really significant step. And it plays into a lot of the things that we're seeing. So we've got Apple Visions come out. So people are going to be out there recording the way they interact with the world. Um, so there's going to be plenty of training data available. We've seen Tesla do it with all of its cars, recording everything and then using that to train and improve itself. So the idea of a generalized model that can learn by observing the real world, to me, starts to get us to that point of super intelligence that we've spoken about before, where the AI is able to learn rapidly and ultimately generate its own training information such and, and improve its own models such that it's able to escape the, the sort of slow rate of human learning and get to a point where it can actually get better than us. So I think this is very significant. We've seen it before with like, you mentioned this earlier with like training on video games where it's like, Hey, your only goal in this video game is to get the score to go up. You don't tell it anything. It, it tries all the controls. It keeps trying things until it figures out how to play the game. It finds all the glitches in the game. This is going to be the same, but in real life, it's going to be like, Hey, here's how a person operates in life. Um, you've got two arms, you've got whatever robot eyes, blah, blah, blah. Start interacting with the world and figuring out how to do stuff. So it's literally going to find, as my son would say, glitches in real life um, and like optimizations on how to behave in the real world that that get it to its goals. Hopefully that doesn't involve killing people, but I somehow <laughs> suspect it will. So it was pre-trained on a bunch of video data, right? But then the cool thing about this is it can then learn by just watching a, a demonstration of something and and then it can infer what it learned from that. So if the example they give in the video is ripping a piece of paper in half, um, and then it responds with tearing something into two pieces. Um, and there's a bunch of other examples in there as well. So that idea of like an AI being able to learn in context and then keep that knowledge as it uh, performs is, is pretty remarkable and something that'll be interesting to play around with. I think maybe we'll try and play around with this and, and report back next week. 
Yeah, because as I pointed out to you before, and I mentioned this on a previous cast, the real sinister implication of this technology is it making subjective judgments about what's going on in a given video could be applied in really, really bad ways. Like this person is acting suspiciously. This person is acting in a way that isn't suitable for society or whatever judgment it wants to make. And then you can just feed this thing hours and hours of surveillance footage and things like that and identify behaviors and, and, and things in humans. And I, I really feel like this is one technology that will definitely be misapplied um, and and probably where hallucinations and other problems are concerned. If this kind of tech, tech makes its way into government, it could be a really, really bad thing. On that note, we'll move on. The doom and gloom <laughs> note. Yeah. I think it could also be really positive, but yeah. It, oh, there's it's hard. fun stuff too, and I'll be using it. I'm just saying that of all the technologies we've seen lately, this is the one that scares me the most. Yeah, someone said this recently on, on Twitter, like of all the excitement around AI, really all it's proving to do is take creators and artists' work uh, essentially compress it and then recreate it however people want. So it's like effectively yeah. theft. And then on top of that, it's theft from people's videos that they've uploaded to say YouTube, uh, training it to be able to perform tasks that a human would in order to replace them. So there, yeah, a lot of this is just mimicking humans and copying, which makes sense if you're trying to train um, an, a new technology to learn. But at the same time, you can see it through that lens where, you know, maybe this is uh, like, yeah, it, it could be overly negative for people moving forward. Uh, so moving on, Stability AI introducing Stable Cascade. Um, we have actually put this in Sim Theory, so you can play around with it right now. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, and th there's two areas this excels at, in my opinion, is it seems really good at instruction following um, with tweaking the prompts. The, the image quality is incredible. Um, and it also is able to pretty reliably put text on images, which a lot of these AI models have struggled with in the past. But the crazy thing about Stable Cascade is you can actually run it on your local computer as well. Um, so it's incre incredibly efficient uh, as a model. Now you've you've put this into Sim Theory, you've played around with it. What did you think of Stable Cascade? Yeah, at first I was really excited because um, the image quality is so good. Like I think to me that's the real standout is the quality of the images it produces are really good. I actually found its ability to follow instructions isn't wonderful. Like you're right that it can render legible text, which is a huge, huge benefit. Um, it does still sometimes misspell words or like put double letters or miss a letter. For example, like I did one example that everyone pointed out of ask a image model to make a room with no elephant in it. Say, don't make it, make an image with no elephant. And then I wanted the text, no elephant at the top. And it did that, but it wrote no elephant. It missed a letter. And so I guess the more I played with it, the more I realized it suffers from very similar problems to other image models. Maybe I'm not prompting it in the best way, but it definitely seems good. You can you can make some really cool images with it and the fact it can run on lesser hardware is exciting given the high quality of it. But it didn't it didn't strike me as like so game changing that um that I like like when say you use Midjourney that I'm yeah, like it's just another evolution, I suppose, for the stability AI guys. 
Interestingly, though, it can be trained and fine-tuned on consumer hardware thanks to this new three-stage approach they talk about. And they're using this new architecture, which I'm going to have to get you to pronounce. I think it means small sausage in German. Oh, version. Version, yeah. yeah the version architecture. <laughs> yeah, because when, yeah, <laughs> when I first saw it, I'm like, oh, they're, they're just like joking with the hot dog, no hot dog thing or something like that. Yeah, so... But it sounds so fancy because of the umlaut, right? <laughs> Yeah, so if you want to um, if you want to play around with it, check it out. We'll link uh, in the description on Sim Theory, and you can play around and create images with Stable Cascade. So that I think will do it. Uh, <laughs> that was a lot to cover, Chris. There's been so many announcements: Sora, ChatGPT, Memory, OpenAI potentially moving into web search, Gemini 1.5 with the you know researched up to 10 million contexts. Microsoft GraphRag, NVIDIA Chat RTX, Microsoft UFO. UFO that can control your computer, VJEPA, a new way for in-context learning with video, stable cascade using a new diffusion, uh, diffusion model, I should say, rather, and technique. Uh, that That's a lot to cover and a lot to take in. So all of the links and information will be in the description. And of course, we're now doing this through the This Day in AI bookmarking feature. So... You can just click through to one link and get all the news. You can comment on it and talk about it. If you haven't signed up um, and you don't intend to post things or, or comment on things, you'll still get a daily summary of the news um, that we're doing through AI. So we feed in all the topics and you'll get a daily summary. Even if summary. they haven't signed up, we'll track you down and we'll send you the news whether you want it or not. <laughs> we'll, we'll send Microsoft UFO after you. Yeah. <laughs> So as I said, all of the links, I'll bring it up on the screen now, can be found on episode 51 on This Day in AI, link in the description. Thanks for sticking with us as we made our way through all of these topics. I don't know whether to uh, go out and buy like guns and ammo and, uh, and, and food supplies and bunker down or get excited about the future of what's coming. Yeah, these companies just have to actually release the stuff. That's my next step. Yeah. I want to actually try them. Next step is to try it out. All right, thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week. If you like the show, please do consider leaving a review. Uh, we'll catch you later. Goodbye.